Today's episode is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn has smart banks of practice questions for a wide variety of high-stakes examinations. Are you a med student? They have smart banks for step one and two. Are you a resident in the field of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or anesthesiology? They have you covered with smart banks for the exams you will encounter along your journey. But this is not only for physicians. PAs and MPs can prepare for their exams using TrueLearn as well. They can even help nurses prepare for the NCLEX. Click the link in the show notes for a discount by using the code EDDIEJOMP. D25. Crush your upcoming exams by using TrueLearn. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. For historical context, today is the 21st of November of 2022. I really, really want to do more than one podcast episode per month, but unfortunately, my time is quite limited and this is honestly the best I could do. This podcast is a follow-up to the Cardiogenic Shock podcast that I put out last month. Gotten some fantastic feedback on that. I greatly appreciate everybody's support. As uh, already, I have over 2,000 downloads to that podcast episode. So it seems as if you guys are enjoying it and are spreading the word. I hate doing this, but if you could take a couple seconds and give me a five-star review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to this podcast, it help. It greatly helps my podcast grow and reach new audiences. That being said, let's continue on our discussion about cardiogenic shock, and we'll start with the classification of cardiogenic shock. Now, historically speaking, there have been numerous types of classifications, but more recently, there's an organization called SCI, which is spelled S-C-A-I, who has a shock stage classification, and it's an expert consensus. I honestly like this, this one, and every article that has to do with this classification system is free for you to download. I know it's not easy to visualize via a podcast. Well, it's, it's impossible to visualize over a podcast, but on this pyramid is basically A through E, uh, A being the people who are at risk and the easiest who, and by that I mean the patients who have developed either a large acute myocardial infarction or have decompensated heart failure, but in reality, they're not experiencing any signs or symptoms of cardiogenic shock. They're hemodynamically stable. But then again, they've had an insult, a large MI or decompensated heart failure, and they are at risk of deteriorating further. When it comes to B, again, this is A through E, B are those patients who are beginning, hence the B, to get sick. They're starting to have clinical evidence of hemodynamic instability. You might ask yourself, what are these? Well, these are the patients who become hypotensive, tachycardic. They start becoming a little bit cooler on their extremities and they might have abnormal hemodynamics. But in reality, they don't have hypoperfusion. So despite all these clinical findings, they're still making urine. They still look okay. The patients who are stage C of cardiogenic shock, this is the classic type. Now, this is what we usually see when patients present to the ICU. Hypotension is present and they have clinical evidence of hypoperfusion. And this means that we're trying to reach into our goodie bag to see if they need pharmacological or mechanical support to try to save the lives of these patients. D are those patients who are deteriorating. They're past classic. They're getting worse despite us either putting mechanical circulatory support or bumping up their pharmacological therapy and they're still not doing better, they're deteriorating, they fall into this category. Last but definitely not least are the patients who are an extremist. These are the patients who have coded or are about to code. We know these patients when we see them, they're on jet fuel or they're on mechanical circulatory support at the highest levels that we could provide them with. And despite this, they're still not going to do well. And I know it seems very uh, abstract the way I was just describing these three stages, A through E, 
but putting it back into a little bit of a clinical slash biochemical biochemical perspective stage a again are those who are at risk when you do the labs draw normal the renal function is good their lactic acid is good they're normal tensive i i don't waste my time in floating swans or doing anything significant for these folks until they present themselves getting sicker i think it's just not a very high number needed to treat to find a value in floating a swan in these folks but again these just these are just at risk you need to keep an eye on them they're usually not in the intensive care unit the patients who are beginning to have cardiogenic shock again this is stage b these people are still warm and well perfused their mentation is fine their pulses are fine but they, you know they might sound a little bit wet their jvp might be elevated although i can't tell you the last time i looked at jvp being completely honest sorry medical students it's not something that is done regularly but if you're to go ahead and do labs on these folks their lactate is normal their renal function still looks okay the hemodynamics are where you could tease out more than the biochemical markers or the physical exam findings that there is a problem with this patient and again they're beginning to go into cardiogenic shock their mean arterial pressure if it's hanging around 60 or so that's going to catch the eye of anybody who is acutely trained in critical care but what i like to what i like to encourage everybody to pay attention to is that if there's a drop in their blood pressure by greater than 30 millimeters of mercury from the patient's baseline well then that patient might be in trouble in addition to that you start noticing that they start becoming tachycardic and if this is the case well you know they're beginning to go into cardiogenic shock and you may need to start preparing for things to get worse before they get better now stage c again classic cardiogenic shock these are patients who on exam i mean they look they look like crap they're they're anxious they're modeled they're dusky they, they their lungs sound poorly they're cold they're clammy they're not making much urine output they have a uh, some encephalopathy on top of their baseline so on physical exam you start noticing that they're they're just not well if you're to check labs on these folks you start noticing that their lactate is elevated their bnp was going to be elevated before but possibly even more so and then you start noticing some issues with their creatinine or even their lfts if you were to go as far as to check that from a hemodynamic perspective you know you have the patients who are in cardiogenic shock so you're going to expect for them to have a map that's low but this in this particular stage of cardiogenic shock these patients are going to need either a drug or a device to maintain the blood pressure and hit certain hemodynamic targets. In these patients this is when I feel that a swan is more appropriate and when you do float a swan you'll find that their cardiac index is less than 2.2. I generally speaking don't wedge my patients, but you'll notice if you do that that your wedge is greater than 15 and I've discussed in the past something called the PAPI score as well as uh CPO cardiac power output and you'll notice that these are abnormal as well if you're to go down this this path stage d is the patients who are deteriorating and they're going to look awful on physical exam from a biochemical perspective lab perspective same things all over again the renal function is going to be crap their um lactate is going to be elevated and here from a hemodynamic standpoint you're going to notice that even though the patient might have a device or they might be a multiple vasopressors and inotropes or a combination of everything um uh, because i i truly believe that mechanical circulatory support is imminent and is necessary in these patients as early as possible you will find that 
um, you know, they're deteriorating. If even if they're on a device and uh, vasopressors, inotropes, they're still not doing well. Well, this is stage D. These are the patients who are deteriorating. And last but definitely not least, stage E is extremis. And these are the ones who are almost pulseless. They're on the vent. They may have been defibrillated or may have uh, undergone CPR at a point. You know, you do a blood gas on them. The pH is less than uh, 7.2. They have a lactate. You know, these patients are, as the authors for this consensus paper state, quote, trying to die, end quote. And it cracks me up because, you know, they, they actually put this in a published paper, quote, trying to die. Because a lot of people talk like this, where we're trying to do everything that we can to save this patient's life. But despite that, they are trying to die. Not my words, are the words of the author. And from a hemodynamic perspective, I mean, there's really not much more you could do for these folks outside of possible ECMO if you do have that capability at your institution. So then you might be asking yourself, well, Eddie, why do I have to learn these different stages? And it's true, you don't have to know these stages. You have to know how to take care of them. That's the most important part. But it's important to know what the stages are for the sake of conversations with the family with regards to prognosis. When you look at a Kaplan-Meier curve that I can share the link for you, share the link with you, excuse me, in the show notes for the article that I got it from, who the lead author is Schrage, uh, published in Catheter Cardiovascular Interventions in September of 2020. They went ahead and showed that when they've compiled retrospectively over a thousand patients in cardiogenic shock, for those who are stage A, again, those who are at risk, they, these these patients do well. They, they don't pass away. Their survival is close to 100%. Not 100%, but close to 100%. Stage B, those beginning cardiogenic shock, they have a 30 days, a little bit less than 75% survival. Stage C, classic cardiogenic shock, this is where mortality hovers at around 50%. Stage D, those who are deteriorating, the survival is... Um, somewhere around 30 to 35 percent. Stage E, you know, those who are an extremist, those who are, quote, trying to die, those are the words of the authors, not my words. These patients' survival rate is just 25 percent at 30 days. So it's important to know that depending on the stage that you're in, the prognosis just drops significantly as the days go by. But there was this recent article that was published in the Blue Journal, that's the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, um, that this journal is the highest impact factor journal in critical care. And they did a study looking at capillary refill time to prognosticate patients who are in cardiogenic shock. Now, there was a very interesting study that's called the Androm Andromeda Shock Trial that was published by Glenn Hernandez. God, I can't remember how many years ago. I think it was like 2018 or 2019 where they randomized patients to who were in septic shock to either get the resuscitation based on capillary refill testing or checking patients' lactate levels. And in that study, which again was very neat, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head, but they found no, no difference in the primary endpoint, which was survival. But it was not statistically significant, but there was a trend for the patients to have better survival if their resuscitation was based on capillary refill time as opposed to resuscitating the patients based on lactate. So um, that was a really cool study and they're actually doing at the Andromeda Shock 2 trial now, which is ongoing and hopefully we'll find some goodies from there. But nonetheless, what they did is that they got patients who were in cardiogenic shock and they went ahead and did capillary refill testing on them. Obviously, I can't show you how to do that over a podcast, but there's several videos on um, the internet's that could teach you how to do capillary refill testing if you are so inclined. But what they found is that if the patient's capillary refill testing was less than or equal to three seconds, their probability of survival 
was almost 90%. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was fantastic. However, if the patient's capillary refill testing was greater than three seconds, these patients' survival dropped below 50% at 90 days. So just doing capillary refill testing when the patients hit the door, well, that will be very indicative of how the patient will do in the long term. So this is something that I'm starting to incorporate into my practice because this was published in July of 2012. And it's something that's simple, easy. You can do it at the bedside. doesn't cause the patient any pain. doesn't cost the lab any money. And it could help prognosticate for us. And what they, able, what they were able to find is that and their, the main conclusion of the study was that if the capillary refill time is greater than three seconds, that there's an increased 90-day mortality or a need for VA ECMO. So if you are not in a VA ECMO institution, well, in that case, you need to start thinking about where you're going to get your patient to because chances are if you don't get them early with mechanical circulatory support or support them appropriately from the get-go, well, then they just might not survive. And I think right now we're crossing over the 12-minute mark, so I'm going to drop this here and talk about floating swans in patients as well as post-contour analysis and bioreactants over the next uh, over the next podcast episode and kind of go over why if we're going to start mechanical circulatory support, why it needs to be started early, as well as discussing about shock team and escalating care for patients who are in cardiogenic shock. And to finish off, again, I'd like to thank everybody for supporting the podcast and supporting my work. Hope you all have a great day with many blessings and I wish you all very happy holidays with your family and friends. Much love to everybody. Bye.